With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, it is fashion week here in NYC, and I thought we could celebrate that by doing an episode on the history of specifically American fashion, which is a pretty big topic. Yes, and in fact, it's far too vast, perhaps, to cover in a single episode of Dress. So we have decided to narrow our focus to a very interesting period of time when American fashion really came into its own. Because for a very long time, the U.S. really looked to Europe to set the pace of fashion. Yeah, for like two centuries, or I guess really if you think about it, more than two centuries if you count the period that was the colonial period of the states um, before they were officially the states, which did not form until 1776, as we all know from high school history class, (laughs) or maybe middle school history class. Yeah. The early colonies that were settled by Puritan and Quaker groups whose aesthetic lifestyle, aka abstaining from luxury and any kind of indulgence, well, that governed their plainness of dress. Post-Revolutionary War, home-sew clothing made from homespun textiles was really considered the mark of the true patriot. Imported goods did little to strengthen the fledging American economy And ostentatious forms of dress really, well, they conjured up unpleasant memories of life under the kings and queens of Europe. And we do want to be clear here that while we're doing this um, episode on American fashion, that we are not overlooking the dress of native peoples of North America. We're not going to discuss that today because instead we'd rather give their incredibly rich dress traditions they're very much own due respect in future episodes. So we will get to that at some point. Absolutely. And while one may not quite yet call these early forms of American dress, quote unquote, fashion, plainness was certainly a style that was closely linked to the American identity. So for fashion proper, Americans looked to European dressmakers and modistes to set the styles. And these were really spoon fed to the American public, who by the middle of the 19th century were now aspirational consumers, and they were really eager to show off the latest imported styles as the embodiment of their success. The quote-unquote French legend, in other words, that fashion could only ever come from French purveyors, was solidified with the birth of the Parisian couture industry during the mid-19th century. And um, we have talked about this already a couple of different times on the show, Cass. Um, but really what happened now is, if you haven't already heard those episodes, if, if France had not already been the world's arbiter of style, you know, these kind of dictatorial attitudes assumed by Parisian couturiers made it so. And Paris couture houses declared themselves the acme of taste, essentially, and the rest of the world just kind of bought and believed. Yeah, but for any of our listeners who haven't listened to our back episodes where we have discussed this quite some detail, for decades, Paris set the pace for fashion worldwide. And for the American retailer, this developed into a complicated game of cat and mouse. So many retailers and manufacturers purchased the right to copy Paris originals, or they made unauthorized knockoffs of Parisian designs, some even going as far as to plant sketch artists among the audiences of fashion shows. And at many of the finer department stores, customers had the option of purchasing either a designer original, which was a licensed copy of the Paris original that was custom made for the client in the store's couture salon, or they had the option of buying the store's own ready-to-wear adaptation, legal or illegal, for a fraction of the cost. So Europe and especially Paris really did have an impact 
on American fashion at all price points. And it was not until 1932 when Dorothy Shaver, who was the vice president of Lord & Taylor, began promoting the names of homegrown talent that American design began to emerge from the shadow of Paris. When American fashion began to develop its own style, which was coined the American look. And the American look was kind of characterized by a distinctive minimalism and a modular nature that made it possible by way of separates. American style was practical, it was fresh, and it was modern. And in many ways, it was positioned as the flip side of the coin to European haute couture. To delve into this topic further, we have invited one of our favorite fashion historians to join us, Dr. Rebecca Arnold, who is a senior lecturer in the history of dress and textiles at London's prestigious Courtauld Institute of Art. And I might add a fellow fashion history podcaster, which is something that I'm sure we will touch on near the end of the episode. Welcome, Rebecca. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if this is not already obvious to our listeners, uh, you are in fact British. And I only bring this up because it leads me <laughs> to my first question. And that is that it might be a little bit unusual that a British fashion historian would have their sights set on studying American fashion to the degree that, that you have. Um, because in 2009, your book, The American Look, Fashion, Sportswear, and the Image of Women in 1930s and 1940s New York was released. Um, and this book has been super helpful to me in my own work. So thank you for writing it, first of all. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad it's useful. Yay. Um, I'm hoping you can tell us what it was that led you to studying American fashion. Well, the short answer is Louise Dahl-Wolf. Hmm. And the longer answer is, um, I mean, I'm actually a historian by training and I'd always been interested in American history and culture. And personally, I've always been interested in American film, music, fashion. Um, and I think I became increasingly drawn to Louise Dole's photographs. And I actually what triggered the American Look Project was I was lucky enough to meet this wonderful editor Philippa Brewster and she said to me if you could write a book on anything what would it be and I kind of just went blank because that just seemed like the biggest question <sighs> ever and I went home and, and repeated it to my boyfriend and he said well you always seem to come back to Louise Wolf and Claire McArdle and I thought it was like a light bulb went off and I think it's just I'm you know I'm very much an Americanist a modernist and I'm just fascinated by the visual culture but I'm also really interested in the way that an industry came into being via ready-to-wear and very business-minded rather than haute couture, which led the way, obviously, in Paris and then influenced London's approach to fashion until sort of later in the 20th century. And we will get into all of this as we go on in a little more detail. Um, but I'd first like to start off discussing the American look um, in 1932, when Dorothy Shaver launched this American designers movement. Would you give us a little background on Shaver? Um, who was she and why was she important at this specific moment? Um, well, Dorothy Shaver was one of the first women um, vice presidents of a department store. She was vice president of Lord & Taylor in New York, which was a very important fashion store at the time. 
and particularly for American fashion. And it's a very significant moment. I mean, she was really important for connecting art to fashion. So, for example, she brought over elements of the what was came to be known as the Art Deco show from Paris in 1925, and she brought that over, and elements of it were shown in the windows of the store. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, she was very much, I think she's really fascinating because she, she's a great businesswoman is mm-hmm. the kind of bottom line. And she, you know, this was the depression, you know, the 1932 was one of the worst years of the depression. And so all New York department stores were in trouble and they were all looking for ways to kind of shore themselves up. And what Shaver did was she looked to American design and selling American design as something desirable. I mean, a lot of, um, I mean, during the 20s, during the boom in the 20s, stores, newspapers, magazines um, had representatives over in Europe. And so information was continually, continually being sent back from Europe. Many of those, most of those were brought back in the Depression. And so America is looking inwards in terms of fashion. Mm -hmm. And Lord and Taylor, one of its initiatives was to look at American fashion and to sell it as something desirable and designer-led. And so she was really important. And I think, as I say, 32 is a really significant year because it was such a bad year. It was really, you know, the the hardship really hit at that point. So in one way, it's it's almost like this, this was a novel idea to entice customers into the store. Certainly. I mean, it's not the first time that it has been suggested that America should build its own you know, kind of fashion, not fashion industry, but American design-led industry. Um, certainly earlier in the 20th century, there were pushes to do that. But mm-hmm. I think it was definitely, you know, there's a definite economic reason for doing this. Um, you know, some stores went uber luxury mm-hmm. at the start of the Depression, which sounds perverse, but I think they thought if we're so beautiful and enticing, people will spend. Others went kind of bargain basement, literally. Mm-hmm and had the cheapest, cheapest things on sale. And neither of those really quite worked. So the American, well, it wasn't the American look at this point, but American designers movement was one way of addressing this. And our listeners will actually already be familiar with one of the very first designers to be selected to be promoted as part of Shaver's American designers movement, um, Elizabeth Hawes, on whom we've already done an episode. So if you have not check this one out. Please go back and listen to it. Um, It's one of my favorites. And I know, Rebecca, that Lizzie holds a special place in your heart, as well as mine. She was really an iconoclast, like light years ahead of her time. But in April of 1932, Lord and Taylor announced by way of a press release that in addition to Elizabeth Hawes, also Annette Simpson and Muriel King would be the first three participating designers in their promotion of American talent. Um, What about them was so uniquely American? Like, why were they selected? What are some of the tenets of this Americanness and the types of fashions that they were designing? I mean, I think the first thing I would say is I, I don't know that it was about being quintessentially American, because I don't think there was particularly an idea that, that an idea, a sort of coherent, cohesive idea of American fashion per se, existed at this time. Mm -hmm. I think it was more that they were American creators who already had a certain level of success and visibility, who were designing under their own name, which was on their labels, which was very unusual. 
And so I think it's about them representing America rather than necessarily Americanness. Uh, how did this promotion of the American designers play out in the department stores, specifically Lord and Taylor, if you just wanted to discuss one? The promotion was own this was a distinct promotion for Lord and Taylor. So it was specific to that. But what's important is they would have a photograph of the designer. And then in the section of the store where the clothes were for sale, there were connected displays. So that was really important. And I think it's that naming that is really, really significant. And Lord and Taylor was actually not the only department store um, during the 1930s to kind of jump on this bandwagon. Uh, a little bit later, Bergdorf Goodman had their own version of this type of promotion. Mm. And and so did B. Altman, um, which a lot of us aren't familiar with now because it's um, now a defunct department store. But at the time, it was very, very well known, um, very high end and important. So Speaking of like American department stores versus what was happening in Europe, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between fashion in the U.S. and fashion in Europe at this time? I mean, certainly, although there was a push to promote American designers in America, that wasn't as well known in this country, in Britain or in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, there were little stores, like little tiny boutiques near the American embassy, for example, in, in London, which sold American sportswear, which I'm always hoping I will come across something or other giving me information about these. Um, but Madge Garland kind of mentions them in one of her books, and I'm always kind of fascinated. So clearly they were selling these designers to Americans living in Britain. But I don't think there was the there wasn't the sort of knowledge of American fashion until really post-war, I'd say, and more into the fifties. But I think what's significant is Paris is still being held up as you know the sort of font of all knowledge in terms of an idea of what fashion is. But America is definitely pushing to assert its fashion source, and because of the depression domestically East and within Latin America, it has more opportunity to do that. But also there's kind of at different levels, you know, like there's the fashion group is set up in the early 30s to promote women, you know, executive women within the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. So there's there's like a recognition. And I think it's I think it is linked together that like women are important within the industry and have significant roles like Shaver. And also that it's women designers who are most important. I mean, even like Poiret, I don't know if Poiret, you know, that Poiret, he's interested in what America is doing mm -hmm. in terms of business practices. So there's very definitely, you know, from early in the 20th century, there's a really strong sense that America understands business mm -hmm. and that America is going to outstrip Europe business-wise. But it's only really at this there's a suggestion that how maybe they can do something really important design-wise as well. Right. What were the distinctive features of American clothing as opposed to European couture? The, the the idea of the American look is a very particular genre of American fashion. It's not representative of all American fashion, but it's very much sportswear based. And sportswear at this time was a very broad church. So it included active sportswear, um, what was called kind of town and country wear. Um, and there's also the idea of passive sportswear, which was what you would wear to go and watch a sports game, <sighs> um, which is, is rather a strange thing. Um, and also then travel wear. Mm -hmm. But 
what these have in common is they are usually very simple designs, simple and visually simple, even though they might be complex in construction, um, that they are interchangeable separates form the basis of these wardrobes, which is very significant because most fashion at this time is based on, a, on an outfit, like a dress with a jacket, maybe. Right. Whereas this is, is separates, which is really important. And so America, the American look was seen as easy to wear, easy to wash, easy to look after. And expressing an idea of modernity, modern living, modern bodies by being pared down, um, kind of simple fabrics like cotton, denim is used, wool. So, so things which are expressive of an idea of Americanness is about authenticity. Mm-hmm. And practicality, I would add as well. Yes, absolutely. No, practicality is really important because the sort of keystone is that it's clothing which addresses women's lives as they're actually lived. Mm-hmm. So it's what what will be easy for a woman to wear all day for all different kinds of activities. And I would say part of this might also have to do with like just general um, landscape of America at the time, because we're really seeing the suburbs of America growing and booming. And if you really needed something practical to wear all day, because you weren't necessarily living in a city center where you could just pop home and change a few times. So I think all of these kind of play hand in hand, especially after World War II. Definitely. I think, I mean, the suburbs are beginning to grow pre-war, but as you say, it really grows enormously um, post-war. And dressing for the suburbs is again about a lifestyle change in the fact that you, you know, that women may be in their gardens part of the day, as well as being inside their house, going to the shops, collecting their children, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, they need clothing, which is going to survive all of those things yeah. <laughs> and still look neat and smart and presentable. You wrote something really interesting um, in your book that I've always thought was so genius um, in trying to wrap my head around how Americanness was, as you said, kind of being constructed um, by uh, fashion advertising during this era. Uh, you wrote, quote, sportswear designers and promoters asserted the dominance of the modern woman and sought to construct her as the binary opposite of the lady who was represented as an elitist anachronism symbolized by Parisian couture. In contrast to the ideals of democracy and freedom assigned to sportswear, and increasingly New York sportswear in particular. And I just love this image that you set up of the American quote-unquote modern woman versus the Parisian lady. And I would like to get more into this after a short break from our sponsors, Why sportswear? You've touched on that a little bit, but I'm hoping we can flesh that out a little more. I mean, it's very much a construction, but, you know, advertising imagines culture both as it is and as it will be. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important how, you know, there's so much money invested via America and Europe in Paris as this icon of fashionability and as the Parisian lady as the epitome of fashion. Mm -hmm. And so America has to produce itself as something different and alternative. And it very much, the industry, the fashion industry plays into the idea of America itself as young and new and an alternative to the kind of corrupt old world. And so the Parisian lady 
is her kind of stereotype is that she dresses several times a day, that she needs a maid to dress her, that she doesn't do anything terribly active. There's a very funny write-up, I think it's in Harper's Bazaar at the time, that, you know, that French ladies, when they play tennis, it's very slow and docile, don't play to win. Whereas American women, you know, charge around the court and they really want to win and they're, you know, <laughs> So, so there's this this kind of idea that, you know, American women have more get up and go. And I mean, you can see it even in like the Gibson girl. Right. That there's this sense that American women are athletic. And certainly, I mean, college, you know, more girls are in college, more girls are playing active sports in college. So there's some truth in it, as there kind of have to be with these stereotypes. But the idea of an American woman being modern is that she represents the new century, that she's active, she's dynamic, she's juggling different aspects of a lifestyle rather than her life being completely consumed by looking fashionable and being perfect right? and all about style. And, and, and dressing four or five times a day. <laughs> well, exactly, which I have to say I find rather enticing, even though I'm very much an American look person. I kind of, you know, <laughs> there's a little part of me that thinks that would be fun, actually. <laughs> I, I think I have to agree with you. I think you and I have enough on our plates, though, <laughs> to not worry about that. I have suggested to my students that we wear t- dresses in the afternoon because I always think that would be nice but yes it would be too much (laughs) um we would be totally remiss to not discuss an article that came out in 1945 in the May 21st issue of Life magazine and it was what is the American look that's what the title was I'm sure you are intimately familiar with this article (laughs) um and the subtitle of it is actually quite interesting too because the subtitle of it is the girls of the U.S. have an air all their own. So, so far, we've kind of discussed the American look in terms of fashionable dress, but there was also a physical component to this aesthetic. Um, the article goes on to quote Dorothy Shaver, um, saying that Dorothy Shaver thought that the number one component of the American look was, quote, that certain kind of American figure, long-legged, broad shoulders, slim-waisted, and high-bosomed. So can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I found it really fascinating in your book when you mentioned that American retailers had actually stopped using French mannequins for their displays in their windows because they felt that these mannequins did not represent the physical type of most women in the U.S. And do you think this goes hand in hand with with the sports that you just referenced, that the um, American women were playing in increasing numbers? Actually, American women, you know, the average was quite small. It was like five foot four or something at the time. So it wasn't all Amazonian women striding Mm. about America. But, I mean, in 1924, um, Patu had done this huge kind of big splashy press campaign of coming to America to get mannequins to take back to France. This is living women mannequins now rather than yes. window mannequins to get to get models to come back to France to show his clothes because American women were the right people to show modern you know sporty clothes mm. so already it was kind of there as an idea I mean it's really amazing you know like fashion magazines I think it's Princess Babesco in Vogue talks about how you know the wind billowing down the skyscrapers in New York you know molds a particular face as though like your environment is shaping you as you walk around New York and you become this Amazon. 
So it's linked to this idea of being fresh and outdoorsy, mm-hmm. of taking part in all kinds of sports, of having a job, having a family. And grooming actually plays part in this as well, because that Life article talks about how um, because the American abundance of food, you have healthy bodies, um, your, our dental care is supposedly better, according to this article. Um, so they, they, they reference this kind of fresh faced, clean bathing. There's a certain physical emphasis like placed on this, this look that, that they say is different um, from from what was happening in Europe. So yeah, I think I think grooming is definitely part of it. I mean, it's really one of the many things that fascinated me. You know, I mean, I'm still working on American fashion, but one of the many things that fascinates me is the contradictions. Mm-hmm. This white middle-class woman who somehow is an American every woman, and yet America is such a diverse country right and so it's interesting when you when I looked at sort of fashion group meetings they they discussed all aspects of the industry and so they have kind of makeup people in talking about how it's quite difficult to to sort of do color palettes because people are so diverse they might have you know they their background might be say for example Irish Scandinavian Italian mm-hmm. so they would have a range of colors between hair eyes skin tone which perhaps in Europe wouldn't be so and so I think there's there's kind of a contradiction between what the realities were of body shape body size um you know coloring and everything else but the the dominant theme within fashion magazines and within the fashion industry which arguably has held for a very long time is of this kind of unified tall, thin, very groomed mm-hmm. woman. But because she's American, there's like brilliant advice in magazines, for example, that you should get your lunch on a tray because you're a busy exec and your hair done while you're having your lunch on a tray. <laughs> so it's it's very much that grooming is seen as essential in America in a way, a much more advanced way than it is in Europe. But it's like part of your incredibly hectic life. Yes, that the New York pace of life. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, speaking of lunch, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I found a really <laughs> funny article um, recently that was referring to the quote unquote American look diet. No. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll email it to you. It was quite fascinating, as particularly in the fact that what the American look diet was recommended for women was different than their male counterparts. Um, but es- essentially, um, for women, it consisted of a grapefruit and some coffee or tea for breakfast, some cottage cheese and some fruit for lunch, um, and then a steak and some vegetables for dinner. And I just remember looking at it going, that is not enough calories. (laughs) No. Oh, my goodness. No, I saw um, there's actually there's an edition of Marie Claire in the 30s, a French magazine, which has which is all about American girls. And that has a really restrictive diet as well. I mean, it's quite it's very serious, the kind of grooming and and everything. It's very and then dieting is is really extreme. That grapefruit and coffee are the main components of diets at this time, which yeah. sounds like a disgusting combination. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to be having that tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know that image making was really critical in disseminating this look. You know, that we have these photographers like Tony Verzell and Martin Mukazi immediately come to mind when I think of this era. You know, what role were these photographers playing in shaping American fashion at this time? Because, of course, when we see the images of the American look, they had to be captured, right? I think the imagery is absolutely crucial because fashion image makers enable the potential consumer to envision how they might look in these styles. And they also create images which are aspirational mm-hmm. and fantastical. I mean, although the American ones are very much based in an idea of reality and, and sort of have a closer relationship to reality in that it might be showing a model on a beach or, um, you know, at college or something, a sort of real life situation, they're very much about imagination and dreaming. Right. And I think they're absolutely fundamental. I think they're really, you know, for any kind of fashion, I think the imagery is fundamental. It's, you know, obviously designers have to produce the clothes, but there needs to be, you know, a whole kind of industry mediating and disseminating information about them. I think that that it's just so crucial to have image makers enabling people to imagine themselves in these clothes mm-hmm. and to to communicate the idea of the clothes. And it's such an important era in terms of visual dissemination in that you have the first mass market magazines which are arriving on people's doorsteps simultaneously across the whole of America, life being the most obvious one, which starts in 1936. But you have newsreels, um, you know, fiction films, amateur photography. You know, you have so much larger a number of different ways of getting fashion information in this period that these image makers become even more significant and the fact that magazines such as Harper's Bazaar are really thinking about themselves as a whole look as Mm -hmm. the whole magazine representing an idea of modernity and style you know it's all kind of wrapped together and so the American look probably is as much, if not more, visual than it is material. Right. You know, the, the clothing is the kind of conduit, but the the but the images kind of tell you what they mean. You know, I think it's really interesting too, just to look at like kind of the various personalities of the publications themselves during this time. Because if you sit down and you look at Vogue um, from 1930 and 1940, and you look compare it to Harper's Bazaar, there's really a distinct difference in the type of message about modernity that they're sending out. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, obviously at Bazaar, you have um, Carmel Snow putting together a team in the early 30s, uh, you know, sort of getting Alexei Brodovich, getting Louise Dahl-Wolf and, and really thinking, how do we create this really kind of graphic, modern, art-connected magazine? And although sort of Dr. Arga at Vogue, I think Vogue doesn't get enough credit. I think that that there are some very beautiful pages being created in Vogue. Vogue is still, I would say, older and more stately and more Mm. old world Parisian than Harper's Bazaar is. I mean, I think particularly once you get post-war with like Junior Bazaar, which is just one of the most exciting magazines ever, as far as I'm concerned, because it's just so visually exciting in terms of the way it's paced, in terms of the mix of graphics and um, illustration and photograph. It's just amazing. 
So all of this begins in the 1930s, um, but like you said, it's in the 1940s that we really see this interest in American fashion explode. Can you speak a little bit to the role that World War II played in the intersection of fashion and patriotism? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the big impact, the huge impact, Paris had fallen to the Germans in 1940. And so there is this sense in which America is closed off from the the main source of fashion information. And it's seen as patriotic by American. Mm-hmm. And this idea of the American woman being active and wearing, within the context of the times, more practical clothing, plays ideas of not being overly fussily dressed in, in this period. And I mean, you see it in films of the era that often there's a female character who's looked at askance because she is overdressed mm-hmm. and too obviously obsessed with fashion. And she would be juxtaposed with someone wearing something much more American look-esque, which is seen as a woman who is practical and concerned with her life and what she's doing and her activities. So I think because there's always a rush of, of feeling towards national identity in a war of that scale, it kind of marries with the mood of the time and it marries with the needs of the time and the sort of L85 restrictions, which were to do with um, having shortages and sort of restricting the amounts of fabric being used and that kind of thing um, in America in this period. So I think patriotism is really crucial and it's kind of just after the war that Dorothy Shaver and other people are using the term the American look a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, up to that point, you also get American modern used almost as much as you do American look, probably more even. Um, so when we come back, I am hoping um, that we can talk a little bit more about some of the big name designers that you and I both love who came to define the style. But first, we're going to take a short sponsor break. I would love to shift gears here for a second. And I feel like this is the moment where we get to gush about some of our favorite designers (laughs) that we adore from this era. Um, Some of them like Claire McArdle, who I know you are a big fan of. Oh, I am. Their work really continues to have a lasting impact on American designers who are working today and and more than American designers. Um, Can you talk very briefly about Claire, and maybe um, a little bit about some of your other favorite designers who are part of this movement? Yes. I mean, you probably shouldn't invite me to speak about Claire McArdle because I could go on for many, many hours and days about how much I love Claire McArdle. But I think what I'm fascinated by is I think she, perhaps more than any designer of the era, and certainly is you know, one of the greatest, I think, for understanding what ready-to-wear is and mm-hmm. what can be achieved when you are making clothing in large numbers on machines. And I think this is something other designers don't always get, that they don't recognize the need to pare down, that machinery at this time was cutting multiples and that the simpler the design, the truer the final garment will be, the less pattern pieces, the truer it will be to the original design. And I think she really understood that and she had a very keen idea of how you could adapt elements from couture. So really interesting, like using bias cut segments, um, using interesting buttons, using interesting belts to enliven 
a very simple outfit or a very simple garment. And so I think she, to me, really epitomizes the idea of what is modern fashion and how do you dress to be modern. And those were really, well, they still are two of my kind of guiding things that I'm fascinated by and continually asking myself. I mean, I think it's really telling that there was that exhibition in the 80s which put Madeleine Vionnet, Claire McArdle and Ray Kalkubo of Comme des Gats mm-hmm. together. Because I think that recognises that these were three women who understood the genre of fashion within which they were working, but also, crucially, their customers. And I think what McArdle has particularly is that she relates to her customers and she is, you know, she is herself seeking to have this active lifestyle and to have a sort of successful career and to dress for that and to project this sort of quintessentially American look image. So that that's my my propaganda on why I love Claire McArdle. And we promise we will absolutely do an episode on Claire McArdle in the future. It's it's on our <laughs> it's on our schedule. I know that you have talked about her a bit on your podcast, which we, I want to hear more about here in just a second. Um, do you have anybody else that is really high on your list besides Claire from this time period? From this time period, I really like Carolyn Schnurr. Mm-hmm. I think her clothes, I don't think there is kind of groundbreaking, but I think they have a real ease to them. And I, I like the way she sort of uses children's wear as an influence, but in not in a way that produces girly clothes, if you know what I mean. I, I think her resort wear, there's a real kind of warmth to it. I think Mildred Oric is really interesting, who was at Parsons with McArdle, um, for her experiments with um, bifurcated garments. And mm. I looked at her archive and it's really interesting how she was sketching yoga positions to think about how your body moves but then also researching historical and um, global uses of trousers Mm -hmm. to think about how you could convert that into something for the present day Um, I really like Tina Lisa who I know you love as well yes um, because I I think again there's real warmth and ease in her work I think her hand painted blouses and dresses are amazing and as someone who's obsessed with the seaside and oceans I love all those references that she brings into her work as well yes and we will also do an episode on Tina Lisa maybe we should do it Claire versus (laughs) Tina because they were kind of opposite sides of the coin in in certain respects let's not get them into a fight (laughs) we won't we won't we won't I'm sure they were friendly they had to have been That's something I'd really like to know. Like, I know that Josette Walker, Mildred Oric, and Claire McArdle were all friends, went to Parsons together, went to Parsons in Paris together, continued a relationship. But it would be really interesting to know more about the interrelationship between these people. Like, you can get kind of little teeny nuggets by reading fashion group archives, but the designers aren't involved in that. Mm-hmm. So it's quite hard to trace who knew who and to what extent and what connections they had. Yeah, we need like a like an American fashion Venn diagram, basically. We do. We do. <laughs> um, so at this point um, in the 1940s and progressively as we move into the 1950s, um, American fashion has begun to gain so much traction that Paris starts to take notice. Um, you know, a socialite and Harper's Bazaar uh, editor Daisy Fellows took note of this early on in the 1930s. She said, quote, America has influenced Paris clothes enormously. 
since the war, and of course she, here she's referring to World War One, since this is 1930, not World War II, um, she goes on to say, I think all clothes have been designed for the American woman. You are so youthful that all the world wants to ape you. And this was 1930, which was incredibly prescient of Daisy, um, who's a fascinating subject in her own right. Um, she did not lack a little scandal in her life, let's just say. But what happens when Paris couture or the Parisian fashion industry stands up and takes notice of American fashion? How did this all play out? I mean, I think, as I said, they'd been taking notice of America in terms of business since the early 20th century. They've been taking notice of New York. And they've been taking notice of New York in terms of celebrity, I think, as well. So, you know, Irene Castle, Josephine Baker, the, there's American women who've been really, really embodying an idea of the modern woman. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in the post-war period, it's not like a sort of sudden waking up to American fashion. I think it's sort of gradual. And I think in Paris post-war and what you see also in New York is that increasingly different fashion centers are sitting alongside each other. Mm -hmm. And so whereas in the past, you would just have the collections edition focusing on Paris, you will now have London, Paris, New York gradually comes in there. You sometimes even get Dublin, you sometimes get Milan, you sometimes get Spain as a whole rather than a capital. And so you're getting more countries being recognized as creating fashion in their own right, which should be noted by, you know, sort of international fashion people. I think what's also really fascinating, and I would love this to be studied more, is that Americans help set up the Italian or help influence the Italian fashion industry post-war. There are American fashion industry people going to um, Italy, they're also going to Japan. They also go to Israel oh, wow. post-war. And these were things I've just heard, you know, like people who were alive at that time have just said to me, you do know this person was there at that time. But I've never had time to do more research and find out more. Um, I mean, Nicola White wrote of some years ago about Italy relying on American um, sort of expertise. But I think that you know, that kind of extension of the Marshall Plan almost into fashion is really something people don't aren't aware of and which is really fascinating in this period. So I think there's kind of both recognisable, we are promoting American designers, but there's also behind the scenes an American influence, which is arguably why the American look kind of, I would say, won out globally because anywhere in the world you're going to find elements of American style if you look hard enough. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like that you bring this up saying that it was kind of like the Marshall Plan, because really this just speaks to the fact that there is still so much work to be done in our field. And yeah. this is job security for us, which is great. <laughs> it is. We are set up for life. <laughs> so we are actually nearing the end of our time together, which is sad because I really do feel like you and I could talk about this for hours and hours. Um, <laughs> but the last thing I'd like to ask you is, how do you think that this period of American fashion, so the 1930s and the 1940s, how do you think it continues to live on in the work of contemporary designers? 
Well, I think it lives on in a stealth way in that a lot of big name designers internationally quietly buy up Claire McArdle clothes and her peers and have a look at them when they're designing their own clothes. Mm. But I think you can also see it living on just, I mean, at all different levels. You can sit in Marc Jacobs' work, but you can also sit in, um, you know, like entire world, you know, the Scott Sternberg, his, his new line you can see it in gap you can see it in um celine mm -hmm. you can see it in so many different designers works this this sort of promotion of clothing that speaks to women's lives as they as they are actually lived as i said in simple but very very well designed pieces that can be used and which are you know used season after season and which are interchangeable um and adaptable to different parts of the day, different occasions. So I think it's hugely influential. I mean, most people have got jeans, T-shirts in their wardrobes, which are, you know, the Amer part of the American look, although a sort of extension of the American look. But, you know, a lot of people are wearing separates, which come from the 30s and 40s, um, you know, like sweater sets, mm -hmm. for example, simple A-line skirts worn with a cashmere sweater. You know, so many things which we take for granted, just the idea of having a Tramble wardrobe, of having a capsule wardrobe, right. that all comes from the American look. And I think I think for a long time it wasn't recognised because it had become so embedded in our lives and in magazine articles. You know, every year there's something about what to pack. Right. You know, and that comes from, you know, Vera Maxwell and then McArdle in the early 30s. So I think there's so much of it that we don't see it quite often because it's everywhere. And I would like to end with this last little bit. Um, you can actually hear Rebecca speak about some of these designers that she's mentioned so far in our episode and lots of other topics on her very own fashion history podcast. Um, would you like to tell our listeners um, what is the name of your show and where can people find you? Thank you. Our podcast, um, I run a podcast with Beatrice Balin, who is the um, senior curator of dress at the Museum of London and also my best friend. And basically, Bond Apart, which is our, our podcast name, is us having a conversation about what we've done, thought of, worked on, talked about, seen in relation to fashion over the previous week. So it's just us having a phone conversation about fashion and we talk about all different kinds of aspects of fashion. And it's really fun. I really got into your Grace Jones episode, just so you know. Oh, my goodness. Grace Jones. Thank you. <laughs> I got a bit too into the Grace Jones. <laughs> How can you not? I mean, really. I know, she's amazing. Um, it's really funny because uh, I had actually emailed you about a quote unquote secret project that, that I was working on right before we launched Dress. But you and Beatrice actually beat us to the punch by a couple weeks. Um, so obviously there was just something very ripe about that particular moment. Well, we're clearly in tune. Yes. Yes, we are. Um, so I want to sincerely thank you so much for chatting with us today on Dress. This has been wonderful because you and I have such a shared love of this topic. And we hope that perhaps uh, you will consider joining us again next time you have a fun new project you'd like to talk about. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's really lovely. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much, Rebecca. I've always found this particular moment of fashion history really captivating. April, you know I'm a huge fan of fashion photography of this era, 
And there is really something to be said about the way in which the clothes and lifestyles these photographers were capturing came to visually define the 30s and 40s. And not only define the look of their own time, um, this spirit of the American look is very much alive and well today. Claire McArdle, who Rebecca mentioned, is really beloved and cited as a source of inspiration to many American designers working today. Um, Michael Kors, in particular, has acknowledged her influence on his own work. And it has been said by many other people that without Claire, there would be no Calvin Klein. There would be no Ralph Lauren. Um, And it's really her legacy of smart, minimal sportswear separates that lives on today. Absolutely, April. And it's not just Claire. There were many American designers who contributed to the style that has become defined as the American look. And this happened by the 1950s. So there's Claire McArdle, Carolyn Schnur, as Rebecca mentioned, but also Bonnie Cashin, Sydney Ragg, Tom Bergantz, and Tina Leeser. They each had an incredibly unique viewpoint, but collectively their work had a minimalist sensibility and it really emphasized adaptability. And it was characterized by their ingenious use of materials, the interchangeable pieces in the form of separates, and practical details such as pockets that we all love. And fear not, I'm quite certain that several of these designers will be covered in further detail on future episodes. But for this week, we bid you adieu. And we hope that you consider incorporating a little bit of practical chic into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. For images that accompany each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can find us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. Please email us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. For further reading pertaining to each week's episode, please check out our show notes at www.dressedpodcast.com. And also, please don't forget about our merch store at www.tpublic.com forward slash dressed and that's spelled t-e-e public.com forward slash dressed and you know what Cass um, after we had our episode on fashion and sustainability I don't know why we did not mention this but we didn't think of it in the studio at that moment I know but, um, <laughs> in order to do our part we just want all of you dress listeners to know that Any merch that you buy out of our store is not produced until you order it, Um, which that means that it's being produced on demand for you. And that really eliminates one of the biggest problems in the fashion chain, which is the overproduction of stock. So, um, you know, producing it right after you order it and receiving it within a week, that that reduces the possibility that surplus stock is going to, you know, build up in a warehouse somewhere. So we're trying to do our part. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm so glad you mentioned that. We really do what we can, friends. And speaking of friends, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. 